Now, it's interesting that in the New Testament, the New Testament never, ever describes the suffering of crucifixion. Have you, have you ever really thought about that? There's no description whatsoever of the suffering of crucifixion in the New Testament. As much as you get is the kind of comment you've got here in, in John chapter 19 and verse 17, that carrying his own cross, Jesus went to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. So really, as much as you get, as they went to Calvary, they went to this place called Golgotha, and there they crucified him. But we have no real description of the sufferings of crucifixion. And a couple of reasons are suggested for this. One is that actually, because crucifixion was a common uh, penalty, it was something that was carried out constantly uh, by the Roman Empire across its uh, uh, conquered lands, that people were so familiar with the terrors, the horrors, uh, uh, the, the, the just the shocking nature of crucifixion, there was no need to write it in the New Testament because people knew about it uh, at that time. Uh, but I want to suggest there's a further reason, which is perhaps this, uh, because there may be truth in that, but there is perhaps, I think, a deeper reason, and that is that the New Testament is not calling us to really become sort of medieval about it and uh, concentrate on the terrible sufferings of the cross in some kind of a macabre way. What it wants us to do is to actually understand the accomplishments of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so really that's what comes through much stronger in the New Testament. In reality, crucifixion was the worst punishment that the Roman state could devise. And it was uh, deliberately meant to create the most pain, but also the most degradation and shame as a person was put to death in that way. You get that reflected actually in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, a very well known verse of scripture which talks about fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. That would speak of the pain of crucifixion. But notice this also, scorning its shame. Because there was not only agony at the cross physically, but there was humiliation and shame, and deliberately so. And so a man was lifted up naked in a public place, in total agony, and every dying breath will be witnessed by whatever crowd wanted to be there, mocking and jeering as the person died. So terrible was crucifixion that it was never inflicted on Roman citizens. Uh, there's a Roman writer who, who said this, it was reserved in fact for slaves and criminals, but never for Roman citizens. And uh, Cicero, who was a Roman writer, said this, far be the cross not only from the body, but from the thoughts, the eyes, and the ears of Roman citizens. And so Cicero was saying, it's not only that we don't want crucifixion inflicted upon us, we don't even want to think about it, we don't want to see it, we don't want to hear the shouts that come from across, we want to have absolutely no uh, way whatsoever, so terrible is it. And yet, as we gather here this morning, what we have to say is this, the cross is the greatest possible demonstration and the greatest manifestation of the love of God to you and to me. The most famous verse in Scripture says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. And let's be very clear, in saying that God gave his one and only Son to the world, 
God, God was giving his son to the in order that and that's spelled out very clearly in a verse like Acts 2 and verse 23. This man, which is referring to Jesus, was handed over to you. Peter is preaching here. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So when God gave Jesus to us, he gave Jesus to us in order that Jesus might die, and it was because God loved us so much. The cross was no accident. It wasn't that there was some kind of plan for Jesus that somehow went terribly wrong, and there was some sort of compromise brought in. God actually determined this. God loved the world, and the love that God had for the world meant he sent his son to die for the world. And that means, therefore, there is a God in heaven that really loves you and really loves me. Now, there are questions that are asked about the cross, and they're reasonable questions. One of the questions that's asked is this. Was the cross fair? Because Jesus was the one person who'd never done anything wrong, and yet Jesus, on the cross, actually dies a criminal's death. So surely the cross was totally unfair. And I want to say to you very honestly this morning, yes, it was. It was unfair because God is not fair as we want to judge fairness. God favors sinners, those who've actually been in rebellion against him. And that favor is displayed through the cross. There's another question that's asked, which is actually perhaps a deeper question. And it's one that consumes modern theologians quite considerably. And it's the question, was the cross moral? After all, Jesus was totally innocent. And yet we're saying that God allowed, even planned, even determined that the cross should have, uh, that Jesus should actually go to the cross. Can you say that that was a moral action, that he should suffer in that terrible way? Now, I have two sons. Uh, most of you are aware of one son. <laughs> But I actually have two sons, and uh, I have seven uh, grandchildren as well. And uh, some of you will know four of those, uh, potentially. But if you ask me to uh, kind of quantify my love for my two sons or for my seven grandchildren, I don't know how I do that. It's very difficult to know how you quantify your love for your family, for your, for your children and for your grandchildren. I know that I rejoice in their successes. I know that I feel very distressed if I perceive that there's any sense of failure. But difficult as it may be for me to quantify my love for my family and for my sons, how can you possibly quantify God's love for his son? I mean, how can you do that? And yet God sent his beloved son to die for us. So God's love for the world must be extreme beyond imagining. And you need to bear that in mind when you ask a moral question about the cross. God's love for the world must have been extreme beyond our imagining for him to send his only beloved son to die for us. And this, and it is this, that God is not isolated from his son's death. Now, it is possible, theoretically, 
and it would actually, in some instances, definitely have happened for this to, to be possible in life. I mean, uh, there could be a father who's got a son, and the son is dying, and somehow the father can't face it, doesn't want to face it. Maybe his son is dying in bad circumstances, that his father wants even to disown him. And it would be possible, and it has happened, that in this life, a father could isolate himself from his son's death, have nothing to do with it, wouldn't want to hear about it, doesn't want any details of it, doesn't want to be there, doesn't want to be involved in any sense. It is possible for a father to isolate himself from his son's death. But my friends, what we have to say this morning is this, that God the Father was totally involved in his son's death. Because Jesus is not just God's Son, but Jesus is God-made man. And Jesus is how God has come to us. And the Bible is very specific. It tells us that God was in Christ. And therefore, whenever we ask a moral question about the, the cross, we have to say this, that God himself knew the full force of the agony and the shame of the cross. And so this morning, we focus on the cross. In the greatest possible way, it was the greatest possible demonstration of God's love for the world and for you and for me. Okay, let's move on secondly and consider the finished work of the cross. Because we see here uh, in John's Gospel and in verse 30 that that is the, the final word from the cross. When Jesus had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And many of you probably know, because this is such a, a famous statement, that when Jesus cried out, it is finished, that Jesus was not saying, it's over. It's not a kind of uh, cry of resignation. Actually, it is a cry of victory. It has about it that sense of it is accomplished. So it's finished in the sense that all that I came to do, Jesus is saying, has now been accomplished. And so if Jesus had finished and accomplished what the Father had sent him to do, what was it that Jesus did actually do? And so let me make a few of the uh, reminders to you about this, amongst many others that could be made. But one thing I want to say about this is that the cross, Jesus made a substitution. Now, if that was not a familiar word to us, I wouldn't use it probably, but it's very familiar to us. And uh, uh, I, I believe this weekend is the restart of the football season. Uh, maybe a blessing to some of you, that's not to me, but uh, it is the restart, I believe, of the, the football season. And of course, particularly in football, some other sports as well, but particularly in football, the word substitution is hugely and commonly used. Uh, and uh, we know what happens, that uh, one of the uh, players on the field is called off and somebody who's been on the bench is sent on to substitute for the player that's been called off the field. So a substitution is made, one player comes off, another player goes on and takes his place. We're familiar with the idea of substitution. Now when we come to the cross, we're talking about a thorough substitution in this way, because God is saying, before you even start, I'm going to take this on. This is a the cross is about substitution. Friends, we're off the field. We don't even get on the field. Christ goes 
where we should have gone. And sometimes people want to say, well, that's just the Apostle Paul's teaching, but that's not correct. You can find it in other parts of the New Testament as well. So, for example, if you go to the writings of Peter and go to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24, uh, we read this. Peter uh, says, he, that's Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Or again in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, note this, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. And so here's Peter very clearly teaching that Jesus on the cross has died in our place, he's died for us, it was a substitution. Now again, you can ask the question, is that fair? And I have to say, of course it's not fair. God favours us. Instead of us taking the field, instead of us taking the knocks and taking the injuries, instead of us, Jesus takes the pain, he takes the humiliation, and God involves himself right there, for God is in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, substituting for us in the Son he sends. Let me just give you a, a few quotes on this very important point. One theologian puts it like this, our substitute who took our place and died on the cross was neither Christ alone or God alone, but God in Christ who is truly and fully both God and man, and who on that account was uniquely qualified to represent both God and man. Now listen to John Stott, the famous Anglican preacher and teacher in London for so many years. John Stott said this, For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. And then I've heard people, especially these days, suggest that the whole teaching of substitution is a, a relatively, in, in sort of church history terms, modern doctrine. It's something that kind of came in uh, perhaps around the time of Calvin or something. It was not taught in the early church. My friends, that simply is not true. John Chrysostom, Chrysostom was the so-called golden-mouthed preacher of the early church. And right in the very early church history, this is what John Chrysostom preached, a man who drew thousands. He was such a remarkable preacher, and his kind of ministry had an extraordinary effect uh, at the time that he was uh, preaching and teaching. And this is a direct quote from John Chrysostom's sermons. Christ has saved us by substituting himself in our place. Though he was righteousness itself, God allowed him to be condemned as a sinner and to die as one under a curse, transferring only to him not only the death which we owed, but our guilt as well. I'm emphasizing this because we're living at a time when people want to play down this doctrine of substitution. And you get sort of uh, remarks like it's such a crude teaching. And what actually it means is that you, you have a, a father abusing his son uh, by sending Jesus to die in this way if you teach substitution. 
And what really upsets me about this, and it's quite a, a strong teaching that's being put around at the present time, is this, my friends, it completely forgets the dynamic of the Trinity, which is God. Because God is not separated from his Son, objectively just sending his Son to do the work, while God is kind of remote in some way. God is in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. There is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God is absolutely intimately involved in all that Jesus does for us in his substitution there in our place upon the cross. And we can also go on secondly and say he took the punishment. I've said several times already, God is not fair. He favors sinners. But God is just. And he is righteous. And so God doesn't favor sinners by simply winking at sin and counting it as of no big deal. He punishes sin utterly and he punishes rebellion thoroughly. But that punishment was handed out to Jesus on the cross. And although John 3.16 is perhaps the well, most well-known verse in Scripture, I want to suggest that 2 Corinthians 5.21 may be actually the most significant verse in Scripture. For God made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And when it says that God made him, Jesus, to be sin, it means that Jesus bore the legal consequences for our sin. It's as though Jesus was the sinner. That's how Jesus became sin for us, because he bore the legal consequences for our sin. And he took the righteous judgment of God upon himself at the cross. And then also, what Jesus did was to pay a ransom. Now, in fact, the New Testament uses quite a number of pictures to describe what Jesus did at the cross, and I can't deal with them all. But one of the things that Jesus also did was to pay a ransom. And uh, uh, this, uh, this picture of Jesus paying a ransom is also included in this great cry of Jesus, it is finished. Now, when we talk about paying a ransom, we're talking about something that was very familiar with people at the time of the New Testament. Uh, you, you could be taken into slavery, sometimes because of debt, sometimes because of war, or you could be bo born into slavery. But it was possible sometimes to buy yourself out of slavery, or uh, because some slaves were actually able occasionally to earn a bit of money, or it's possible for someone who knew you, a friend of the family may be, to buy you out of slavery. And so when you were bought out of slavery, you were redeemed or you were ransomed, and you were taken out of an enslaved condition and brought into total freedom. So somebody would pay. You were redeemed. You were ransomed by a payment of money to bring you out of slavery and into freedom. Now, as you read the Bible, you might think that's a very old-fashioned idea. We're going back 2,000 years. But let me tell you, we're looking at something here that is totally up-to-date uh, because we live in a world of terrorism and piracy. And you may have heard of, for example, out of many, many examples, I, I could give of pirates off the Somali coast, for example, who've actually attacked and boarded ships and taken people captive and taken them ashore. And then they've demanded a ransom price. And they've said, we'll not let this person go until somebody pays for them. 
Uh, now, you can imagine how that person must feel. Well, they've been captured. You know, what's going to happen to them? You know, will somebody pay? Will somebody get me free? I wonder what you would feel if that happened to you. Suppose you were driving down uh, one of the roads here in Poole, and uh, uh, let's say you're driving through sandbanks, because then you'd look rich, okay? So, uh, so you're driving through sandbanks, and uh, uh, suddenly uh, somebody pulls you over in the car, and uh, uh, somebody gets in, and they pull you out, and they put a blindfold on you, and they stuff you into another car, and they drive off with you. And uh, you don't know where you're going, and you go for hours, and eventually they pull you out of the car that they've driven you in, and they take you into a house, and they push you into a cellar. They say, okay, take the blindfold off, but you're here, and you're not going to be let free until your family pays a ransom for you. We want money if you're going to go free. Just imagine that happened to you. I mean, this sort of thing happens today. And imagine it was you. I mean, what would you feel? Am I going to die here? Am I going to be tortured? Am I ever going to see friends and family again? I mean, you'd be totally desperate. And then imagine that one day the door opens and one of the guys says, okay, come out, you can go. Your family has paid for you, get out. I mean, what would you feel, the joy that you'd feel in being set free? I want to tell you something, my friends. Actually, this is true of all of us who are believers. Because all of us were held in captivity to sin and to Satan. Satan had enslaved us, and whether we knew it or felt it, we were enslaved to Satan, we were under condemnation, we were in a lost condition, we were without hope, we were in captivity, and that was the state that we were in, headed only for loss and further condemnation. And then one day, in some way, for so many of us here, we heard this message of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ has paid the ransom, he has shed his blood to set you free. And in that moment, you were released from your slavery to Satan and to sin, and you were given eternal freedom in the kingdom of God. And everything has changed by the fact that we have been ransomed by the blood of Jesus Christ. His life was given for us at the cross, and in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, we read, He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And when Jesus gives his life as a ransom for your life, Satan has to let go, and you're released into the eternal freedom of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus said, it is finished. Substitution was made because of God's incredible love for us. God's justice was satisfied there at the cross. Jesus took the legal consequences for our sin and a ransom was paid and we were set free. This is the finished work of the cross. And incidentally, although I'm not saying a great deal about it today, it's what makes the resurrection essential. Because if Jesus died for us and died in our place and paid the ransom, what would any of that mean unless there was something tangible to demonstrate for it? And what is tangible to demonstrate for it is that Jesus rose again on the third day. And above everything else, what is happening there is that God is saying, the sacrifice my son has made is totally accepted. And because of that, there is now a release from slavery and from sin and condemnation into resurrection and life. And Jesus rises, the first of a whole new race of men and women 
who will be raised up to enjoy God forever. And then thirdly, let's think about the final work of the cross. The final work of the cross. Some of you may have heard of a famous American preacher and <coughs> communicator called Tony Campolo. And Tony Campolo has, a, I think, a quite famous story of a time when he was a very young man, a young preacher, and he shared a platform with uh, a very much older uh, black uh, pastor preacher. Uh, and both of these men, the, the young Tony Campolo and the older black pastor, were due to preach at this meeting. And so uh, Tony Campolo goes first and he gives it his best shot, it's a big occasion, and he preaches his heart out and uh, then he's finished and he goes and sits down and this older pastor then taps him on the knee and says, just watch and listen. <laughs> and then this older experienced guy gets up and he begins to preach and Tony Campolo says that what he begins to do through his sermon is to say, that today is Friday, but Sunday is coming. And uh, this isn't an exact representation of his message, but this is the kind of thing that he was saying. And He paints a picture of, of Jesus who is walking to the cross. He's been tortured and scourged and spat upon and uh, uh, jeered by the Roman soldiers. And now he's on his way to Calvary, carrying his own cross, which actually, even as he carries it, he's too weak to carry right through uh, to Calvary. And it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And then you come uh, to the place of crucifixion, and there Jesus is nailed to that cross of wood, and he's dropped into the slot in the ground, and he's lifted up there, totally exposed for everybody to see and laugh at, jeer, mock at, why don't you come down off the cross, and all these things that people were saying, and the horrors and the terrors and the viciousness and the brutality of crucifixion. And it was Friday. This Sunday is coming. And there are disciples. Disciples that have been with Jesus throughout his ministry and have followed him and have been loved by Jesus. And they surely loved him in return and they saw his miracles and they heard his teaching. And now at the cross, when in the most extreme circumstances of all, Jesus surely needs his friends and his companions to be there. They run away and they leave him. And it's Friday. But Sunday's coming. And then there's darkness over the whole land. And everything is held, as it were, in the universe in suspense. The Son of God is there dying upon a cross. There's an earthquake and there is darkness and there's a kind of emptiness. Everything's in suspense. It's Friday, but Sunday is coming. And then there's the moment of death. And Jesus has uttered a few words from the cross. I think it's six or seven words are recorded in the, the Gospels. He's drunk from a, a sponge soaked in wine. And then at the very end, his spirit is given to the, his Father into my, your hands. I commend my spirit. And this great cry of Jesus. It is accomplished. It is finished. And the Son of God there upon the cross is dead. The living one is dead. And it's Friday. But Sunday's coming. And my friends, in the Christian life, we always live with more to come. On Good Friday, things looked awful. But Easter Sunday 
was coming. There is the finished work of the cross, and we've just looked at that for a few minutes here this morning. But even having talked about the finished work of the cross, let me tell you this, there is something more that is coming, and that is the final work of the cross. You see, the finished work of the cross means that Satan is defeated. Colossians 2.15 says, And having uh, disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And yet, as we look at the world today, Satan doesn't seem to be too defeated. There is so much evil, so much going wrong, so much appalling horrors, violence, and wars. I want to say this to you today, something more is coming. Because at the cross, Satan was so smashed, he was so disarmed, that he can no longer hold everybody in captivity. But every day of every week, of every month, of every year, thousands of people are being rescued out of slavery and condemnation and brought into eternity and into life. He can no longer hold everybody in captivity. People are being released from his hold all the time. But still, Satan fights with fury and with anger in this world. I tell you, something more is coming. And the something more that is coming is the final work of the cross. Because in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10, it says that when Jesus returns, Satan will be cast down forever. And he will never again be able to do any more damage or create any more evil. And also this, the finished work of the cross means that death is defeated. Death died in the death of Christ. And yet still, Christians die. Now what we need to understand at this point is that the cross removes the sting of death for us. So I take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You'll see that very clearly uh, in what the Apostle Paul says in verse 55. He says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And here's the sting of death that when a person dies, perhaps there is a God. Perhaps there is a God who's told us how to live. And indeed there is. There's a God who has given a law, and people break the law. And because people break God's law, people sin, and that's the sting of death. What's God going to do when actually we pass through death and when we face him? There's a law. There's a law that's been broken, God's law. And because of our sin in breaking God's law, the sting of death is there, but not for us, because actually our sin was taken by Jesus and dealt with at the cross. Jesus substituted for us. He took the legal punishment for our sin. He ransomed us from the terrors of judgment. So for us who believe, the sting is drawn from death for us. But still, there is more to come because we await the final work of the cross. And when Jesus returns in majesty and glory and power and celebration, there will come a voice from the throne that will declare, there will be no more death. Even death as we know it now will be finished. It is the final work. 
of the cross. There's an Anglican prayer, very brief, which says this, Jesus Christ made on the cross a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. And Chrysostom, who I quoted earlier, the golden-mouthed preacher of the early church, preached this, Jesus annulled the curse. He put an end to death. He opened paradise. He destroyed sin. He flung wide the gates of heaven. Now, we live very busy lives. Even in August, we can still live very busy lives. And because we live busy lives, sometimes we don't stop enough and we don't think enough. And I want to encourage you today to look at the cross of Jesus Christ once again, that your joy may be full. And the saddest thing of all will be if there's anybody here who spends their whole life so busy and so taken up with what this life is and what it means that they never think of their eternity and they never think of death and what is going to happen beyond death. But one day death will come and one day you will have to give an account to God. I want to encourage you to look at the cross. Because at the cross, it was finished. It was accomplished. All that needed to be done in dealing with sin was done through the work of Christ there at Calvary. And still, we wait the final work of the cross when death will be no more and Satan will be cast down forever. Surely, we will boast in nothing but the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's stand together, can we? <coughs> Father, we gather, <coughs> gather here on a Sunday morning and uh, we sing our songs and we pause in the midst of busy lives and a busy world. We know that there is business all around us. We know that there is war in nations. We know that there is terror. We know that there is fear. We know that people will be kidnapped today. We know that today uh, people will be wondering what's going to happen to them. And Father, here we are with the privilege of worshipping you, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, because we can celebrate something that has happened, that Jesus Christ went to the cross that he gave his life for us, that he died there at Calvary, that he was buried, and that on the third day he rose again from the dead. And Father, we thank you that by faith in Jesus Christ, we are united to him, and actually we share in a death like his, and we will share in a resurrection like his. We thank you that even as he died, we've died to our old life of sin, and as he has risen from the dead, so we are alive in Christ, and one day we'll receive even resurrection bodies to live in eternity with no thought or fear of death ever again. We thank you, Lord, for this great gospel, and we thank you that what was accomplished and what was finished there 2,000 years ago at the cross stands for all eternity, ransoms us and sets us free and makes us alive to live with joy and in your presence forever. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs>